Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for that introduction. Uh, you can find him at nativestorytellers.com. And he and his wife are amazing storytellers. Uh, and since we're talking about ancient history being passed generation to generation, it's very appropriate to remind you that the first people, the Native Americans, um, kept their history by telling stories. And it's, it's an amazing experience. Please check his website out. It is quite amazing. And I want to thank Mark Eddy for making magic with Skype tonight and making sure that um, my guest could come and be here. So <clears throat> many have searched for the lost treasure of the Knights Templar, most famously at Oak Island. But what if the treasure wasn't lost? What if this treasure necessary to sanctify the Temple of Solomon and create a new Jerusalem, was moved through the centuries and protected by sacred a sacred lineage of guardians, descendants of Prince Henry Sinclair and the Native American tribes who helped him. Great questions, fascinating questions. And my guest tonight is William F. Mann. He's an officer of the Knights Templar of Canada's Grand Executive Committee a member of its Grand Council and serves as the sovereign Great Priory's Grand Archivist. He's also the uh, author of three books, The Knights Templar in the New World, The Templar Meridians, and the book we're going to be talking about, especially tonight, Templar Sanctuaries in North America, Sacred Bloodlines and Secret Treasures. I have to admit it's, it's an area that I have been intrigued by for years, fascinated by for even more than years. And recently, because of people like Bill, my whole philosophy and my attitude towards the Knights Templar and what their treasure actually was, was is, um, has changed dramatically. And I hope that those of you who have a fascination with this area will check out his books because they are more than enlightening and it will help people to understand 
how precious the treasure is that is saved and how it quite possibly is not at all what any of us have imagined up to this point in time. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, I think that introduction uh, was very kind of you. Thank you very much. Ah, well, it meant every word of it. Um, I, I have found that, that by having people on the show that have written books that intrigue me and educate me has, has been probably one of the best educations I, that anyone could ask for, far beyond what you know, traditional school is. And, and being a, a, a retired school teacher, I think one of the things that really um, upsets me greatly is that our children are not being taught history. Uh, they're being oh, taught, I would agree. You know, it, it, what, what they're being taught um, is, is material that has nothing to do with the fabric of what history actually is and was and will be. And when you have something like this journey that you've been on with the Knights Templar, um, it, it, it puts such a, rich, a richness into into time and, and history when you look at, you know, what are we leaving behind and how are we leaving it, it pales in comparison to what the Templars left and we are still finding and peeling back understanding layer after layer of what it is they were trying to save, what it is they were trying to protect for us and what, what it is they were trying to actually give to us centuries later to help us expand our our own evolution it's just it's amazing um no i i would agree absolutely sorry the first thing i i oh no that's okay i think the first thing i want to tap into is the fact that so many of our history books say well there were little hunter gatherer groups of people here when the pilgrims came is just so far from the truth it's unbelievable centuries before they came here there were there were people visiting. There were people um, getting to know the the indigenous peoples. And so, you want to fill us in a little bit about who was here before sure. we got here? Sure, absolutely. Well, the people that were here are known as the First Nations, the indigenous people in North America. Um, I'm sure that many of your listeners realize that North America is referred to as Turtle Island. And it was interesting that you referred to the uh, the fellow that did your voiceover introduction uh, to the show tonight as a storyteller. Um, what yeah. I what I found through throughout my whole lifetime, and uh, you talk about history. Well, there's a hidden history, uh, and many of those are contained within the stories of the first uh, First Nations people. Um, just to give you a little bit more background, uh, my father's side is is obviously very English and very military background, uh, in, as, as my uh, English ancestors are. But uh, more importantly there, there's a very deeply rooted uh, Christian masonry um, philosophy within the whole family. And you have to understand that ever since I could remember, I was sat on the couch by my two great uncles who were all high-ranking masons. Um, you know, elaborated the, and did the memory work in front of me uh, as mm-hmm. a as a five six as a five six year old. I thought it was pantomime gibberish, 
But uh, as I moved up through the ranks of masonry into the various orders, I realized that they were practicing their memory uh, work for the rituals on me. And uh, uh, it's you talk about you talk about notions or or clues or mysteries that have been embedded in uh, what I call blood memory. It's uh, from an ancestral point of view on my father's side. Uh, there's a very rich uh, Masonic history there, and uh, and it was natural for me to just pick up and run with it. And just for your knowledge, uh, uh, Barb, um, in essence, on August the 17th of this year in Montreal, I'm going to be installed as the Supreme Grand Master in Knight Templar Canada. And it's interesting wow. that I'll be 65. I'll be 65 in early August. And 65 years to the day that I'm installed, uh, my great uncle uh, finished his term as Supreme Grandmaster, which was unknown to me until about 25 years ago. So it's it's what's bred in the bone. It's what's embedded in your mind, your blood memory that comes out. But just as importantly, my mother's side, um, I'm very rich, Algonquin native, and that has really surfaced over the past 25 years also. So you talk about storytelling. So if you if you take the rituals and the ceremonies behind Christian masonry and add those to the storytellings of the Medewa, which I am a member of, um, you start piecing things together and you realize that, in fact, as you indicated, there was this uh, continuous transatlantic uh, movement in both ways between North America and Europe in pre-Columbian times and uh, based on trade, but obviously uh, the result of that was strategic intermarriages between mm-hmm. the uh, Templars, the uh, the uh, lesser royalty, European royalty, um, and the uh, and the Native Americans. One one thing I've always said to people when they question it is that you know there's a fallacy. Uh, involved in the Europeans coming and planting the flag on the shorelines of uh, the northeastern shorelines of the Atlantic, um, North America. That would never have happened unless the natives allowed it. And the only way to allow that was there'd be a recognition of common, common beliefs, a belief in a higher being, a higher energy, higher force, but a recognition that uh, you came in peace. And uh, you came to share the knowledge that you you both possess. Uh, so well, as you say, that's, the, go ahead. that's what really, really impresses me in that the very early travelers to this country, they didn't come to conquer. And they, they came to explore and, and to find richness here. But they, they, they came to, to be friends with the, the indigenous people. They didn't. They didn't have, you know, um, conquering and, and ruling over them in mind. And, and because there was that, that camaraderie, that, that they were able to share their spiritual beliefs and, and merge them together, and then certainly the intermarriage as well. Was, I mean, that's the way to, to become one with, with another people, not, not the way later on, those who came here were trying to change and re-educate and, and, you know, change their spiritual belief systems to what was more important in their minds. So No, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And yeah. people ask me, well, are you writing, are you exposing the secrets? And I say, no, no there are no secrets. It's just secretive. And I uh-huh. tried to convince uh, some of the older fellows, you know what, uh, now's the time. And uh, uh, I've, I've spoken to uh, some of the shamans that I relate to. And uh, uh, one lady who's uh, the keeper of the prophecies and the prophecies say, after 400 years of being embedded underground from a Native American point of view, this has to come out because they, there has to be a respect now or or recognized or uh, redeveloped for the Native American, the proud Native American, and, uh, and the knowledge that they possess. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, ever since the Europeans came, um, there's almost a genocidal uh, movement to eliminate the Native North Americans across the, across the entire continent. Yeah, it's, it's frightening, actually. You know, those, when you get up to those years, 1400s, um, they weren't here to most, a lot of, not, well, I can't say all, but it, it feels as though they came in assuming that, that whoever was here was primitive, primitive and had no understanding of, of um, uh, an advanced understanding of a creator and, and all. And they they looked upon the native, the indigenous people, the first family. Of, they looked upon them as so primitive they couldn't possibly understand. And the reality is, they had the the those that were here had a higher spiritual understanding of of life and nature than those that were coming in and trying to take over. Absolutely, and prior to. Uh... Uh, Columbus arriving, you have to realize that Native Americans um, had developed uh, cities, advanced cities, technology uh, based on uh, astronomy, numerology, all all the magical keys in terms of spirituality. And uh, unfortunately, the prophecies were spread uh, just before Columbus arrived. And the Templars were the messengers that uh, those that follow the Templars, uh, the guardians of the uh, true Templar treasure, uh, were the ones seeking it. Uh, agents of the church, such as the Jesuits, they they were ruthless in their uh, in their um, search for the Templar treasure. Well, I understand that. In the you know they were after the the money, but but. But the richness of the Templar treasure has nothing to do with money. So I, I uh, would I would suggest that in fact the Jesuits knew that, and that the mm-hmm. Jesuits were not after after what many people consider to be a, a physical Templar treasure. They were after the knowledge. They were after the wisdom that allowed them to. Um, up until that time, the Church dictated that if you wanted to be in touch with God. If you wanted to be in touch with the uh, supreme being, that you had to go through the church, and uh, they wanted to eliminate any any other spirituality which allowed you to directly talk to a higher being, to a higher force. Unbelievable. <clears throat> so, so let me let let's let's kind of give a, a timeline as to. Sure. Templars and when they became involved, because you know they they were originated in, in the uh, 1100s around there. 
around 1129, they were officially recognized, but the, their movement, uh, their underground movement had been started, say, 1098. Okay. And so, then following so, that. Yeah. Following, the, following their discovery of this knowledge under the Temple of Solomon, uh, uh, the, in many ways it was written knowledge following that. Um, in many cases, the Templars already were making transatlantic uh, journeys to North America, and they knew it was the one place that the church hadn't discovered at but that point, and so there was probably 200 years up until Prince Henry Sinclair's time in the late uh, 1300s, where there was movement uh, among the Templar ports and the northeastern seaboard and the Native Americans. The transporting of this uh, knowledge, whether it be in written form or oral wrote or um, in many cases both, but there was a systematic movement of that knowledge to North America. So, so about 1200, that's when this treasure um, was was taken out of Europe and brought to North America and then as there was further influx of people coming into the country they moved it systematically to stay ahead of um, this flood of, of people coming in absolutely but you have to remember that it wasn't just um, a catch of, uh, of writings, a, a catch of knowledge that was transported on one ship. The Templars were much smarter than that. They, over uh-huh. 200 years, they moved pieces of that knowledge that could be reconstructed in North America. Just to be on the safe side, that, say if they were discovered, uh, the, uh, the church, the French royalty that sought the treasure so badly, um, they would only get one little snippet, one little piece of uh, what you really needed to do is put the piece, pieces of the puzzle back together to gain that entire knowledge. I think it was it was actually brilliant how they um, would would marry into an area and and create a community, and then at some point. Part of them would move on to a new area and do the exact same thing. So in many ways, they were integrating, weaving themselves into the the land itself, and the land itself. The analogy, the analogy I yeah, the analogy that I use is it's like a chessboard. The Templars were three steps ahead of those that sought the knowledge that uh, tried to discover the various uh, settlements, the very refuge or sanctuaries that they established in uh, North America. And and it's brilliant that they absorbed themselves into the Native American culture. Uh, what better way to disguise their activities than to be involved uh, uh, from a marriage point of view, from an activity point of view, um, with, the, uh, with the established uh, Native American settlements. Well, what better way to integrate yourself than to marry into, you know, the 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 group or the the people that you that you are that are helping you, and yes, a lot right. of the a lot of the the early traders to trade traders to this country did exactly that when when they, the very early ones 
they would marry into the um, the Native American tribes that were here, and and so get, got protection and, and information and advice in, in and order to do their early trading. Unfortunately, in, in many cases, the uh, early traders would have taken what was it called the bushwife, and they would have established the uh, uh, intermixed uh, family. And then, when they were successful, they go back and they get a European wife, uh, which is on the unfortunate part of the history. That's a that's another story. But uh, one thing that I can tell you is that uh, in Native American culture that intermarriage would have been absolutely required. Uh, uh-huh. There would be no inland inland movement if they haven't established over generations that that uh, intermarriage with the Native Americans to build the trust. And it was well, beneficial so from both sides. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, these people were here to stay. They were not going back anywhere. And what's fabulous is how how they literally hopscotched their way across the country, um, marrying into, you know, establishing um, refuge refuses, you know, so that so that they they were safe and, and and basically it is the bloodline that they were bringing with them that that um, you know interwoven with the the um, uh, first people. That, that made a stronger um, group, and, and, and certainly because they moved and they hopscotched, um, they, they were not intermarrying so much. They were, they were actually building their power, their strength, and, and their direction as they moved across the country. And they did move all the way, no. almost all the way across the country. Absolutely. And you have to, you have to remember, people will say, how, how were they passed from one nation to the other? Well, what I point out is that the Algonquin Nation, in actual fact, uh, contains probably 57 individual Native nations. As you as you make your way from uh, the northeastern seaboard to, uh, right to the foothills of the Rockies, and it includes everybody from the uh, the Mi'kmaq Nation, the Algonquin Nation in the east, and the Cherokee and the Blackfoot in the west. And they did it peacefully. And they did it peacefully with mutual respect, admiration, and the sharing and the and the outright sharing of of customs, knowledge, uh, and that strengthened not only the bloodline but it strengthened the underground knowledge which was perpetuated uh, across many generations. And uh, I'm proud to say that I'm part. I'm part of that. I I know I was fascinated in the, that you are also initiated into um, a the first Medellin? family. Yes, <laughs> into, into yes. their their um their version of of, of masonry. Yes, it's, it's known as the Great Medicine Society, and okay. it's Ojibwe uh, based. And uh, what I found, uh, I've been initiated in the degrees of the Medewin and uh, and uh, all the lower and higher 
uh, rituals and orders of, of masonry as you move your way through the uh, Royal Arch into Knights Templarism. And I found that uh, in many ways, the rituals are mirror images of each other. So I'm not saying there's a common origin to all these rituals, but there's a common belief in terms of, uh, in terms of a higher being, whether it be the creator, whether it be God, you want to label it God, supreme being, the superior force. There's a higher level of, of understanding and learning which can be gained as you move through the ceremonies. Well, as you move through the ceremonies, um, whichever you move through, it doesn't even have to have a, a, a common origin because spirituality is a natural progress process. So it would seem to me that, that if people were of of an enlightened level as they move through this it would be a natural progression it wouldn't have to be copied no, one at, or the other at, no absolutely you're right and uh, uh, there's many ways to achieve a level of enlightenment that we're talking about um, mm-hmm. it's just I find it really interesting that and it reinforces my theory of this intermarriage that um, there are common elements uh, in any language that you present them. There's common elements to behind the rituals. And mm-hmm. one of the most common elements is one of rebirth, um, whether it's uh, from a Masonic point of view, whether it's a, a death aided by and then aided by your brothers in terms of uh, a reawakening, a rising a rebirth, or whether it's uh, through ceremonies in the sweat lodge, where the sweat lodge represents uh, uh, the female womb and the, you reemerge or are reborn following certain ceremonies within the, uh, within the sweat lodge. Are there similarities um, connected to the Egyptians as well? Because I know they had ceremonies that were very similar to, you know, going into darkness and being brought out of darkness and being reborn, especially that's what supposedly the Giza, the Great Pyramid. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a a case of, of in many ways, the Christian mysteries are based on the Egyptian mysteries. Um, A lot of people who are very religious find that heretical. Um, but uh, when you think about it, it's just a continuation or evolvement of enlightenment. Well, yeah, and we all come from the same source, so it would it no, would exactly. be log- it would be logical if if one were on a spiritual journey that those levels could be achieved, um, or or it would be automatic almost that that once you get to a certain level. There is a seeking for more. There is a seeking for something deeper. And and if you are genuine in your search, you find it. And and then there is another level. And it's it's almost never ending. I would think. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And it's the journey. You've hit it right on the nail on the head. It's it's a never ending journey of uh, seeking of enlightenment. Uh, uh, what I find is that because I've been I've been attuned now to the various ceremonies and orders, I I start to understand 
continually every day a little bit more, even without official ceremony. It's just a it's just a state of of knowledge of understanding which leads to wisdom. Well, isn't it you know the the and I'm not sure where the phrase came from, but you know, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, um, you get to a place if you're on if you're on a journey and you're and you're not taking side trips. Um, it, it's a natural evolution, but that's why it's, that's why a lot of the saints and, and whatever. Um, would go into um, into caves or into the desert to to not have the influences of outside society to be able to do this spiritual journey that was so important to them. Absolutely, and um, I'm a I'm retiring as a as high level management. I'm the CAO of a local municipality, um, but uh, every so often, you're absolutely right. I have to take myself to the wilderness to shed all those material surroundings in in order to be close closer to nature and yeah. uh and that's what and that's what the church is, has been trying to uh trying to deflect for the last 2000 years i don't want to be derogatory to the church because it provides comfort and solace to a lot of people but uh, um that's what the jesuits uh, uh they were trying to obliterate this notion that you could be um, closer to God um, in the wilderness, if you understood how to how to be in contact, and in many cases yeah. the the knowledge that the Templars brought with them, and it was confirmed, and the Native Americans already knew this, is that there were certain certain points on the earth, there were certain points under the earth. Um, the surface of the earth, which allowed you to concentrate that energy to be closer to God. Absolutely. Well, oh, sure. There are those power spots for sure. And sure. It, it, it is amazing to, again, when you understand history, when you understand what went on, and, and you understand the process of the spiritual development and, and the ascension process, you begin to realize that, that today, we, you know, for the most part, um, people are held down and held back and not given the opportunity to make that growth jump. And that's a very sad thing. I, I, uh, it is, it is. And I'm, I'm saddened by it too. And, uh, I would say that politics is a prime example where, uh, I just can't understand where the honesty, integrity, mutual respect, admiration has, just gone out the window. I don't know this populist movement of uh, politics. Uh, I really can't understand. But let's not talk no, politics. I, no, no, let's not go there. That's a whole other yeah. show, and I try to avoid politics yeah. if I can. Um, so, so these these families had created these these um, communities in in certain places, Absolutely. and. So when Prince Henry came over to this country, was he looking for something or was he bringing something? Both. He knew exactly where he was to go because of uh -huh. prior knowledge, because of prior uh, recordings of voyages, but he was also bringing something with him. He was bringing, let's say he was bringing another piece of that treasure which had moved 
uh, out of France to Scotland. When the uh, Templars dispersed the treasure, they not only brought it to North America, which is probably the ultimate destination, but as we know through history, they spread it around. They moved it to England, they moved it to Scotland, Ireland, Denmark, uh, and uh, in many ways, Portugal, where the Knights of Christ uh, were essentially the disguised Templars in the 1400s and, uh, and 1500s, and you have Prince Henry the Navigator. But we're talking about Prince Henry Sinclair of uh, the Orkneys of Scotland. So when he brought, he brought a very key piece with him. And, and the trail that he followed um, was brilliant. Um, I, I think that, that, you know, when people see pictographs or when they see engravings on old stones, they think, yeah, see how primitive they were. But no, it wasn't primitive at all. Um, you, you've said in many places it's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Yeah, some of these pictographs look like, you know, just scribblings on the wall. However, yes. there were there were markings on them that, that gave messages. There were symbols on them that told directions. There were um, holes in them that, that, that were markings for journeys. And, I mean, it was, it was such a, a, a complicated code. It was so complicated that, that people would rather think it was just crude rather than a message from time. And no, absolutely. They and there were, car- there were carved stones, which included many layers of code. Um, what I find is the brilliance of, of the Templars at the time. You know, uh, 600, 800 years ago, we may have thought that they were less knowledgeable, less um, enlightened. No, I think we're the, uh, we're the cruised ones that have to regain that knowledge. Um, to the to the point that as you as you say um, through my uh, writing of my books I've realized that there were embedded messages um, for those with the eyes to see um, Uh right in plain sight mind you you're trekking through you're going across the Great Lakes you're trekking through the woods on ancient pathways um, you would have to know, you would have to be enlightened yourself to, to recognize the signs, seals, and tokens that were left behind by earlier generations. And, you know, that's, that's what's so fascinating to me. It's not just, you know, eh, 20, 30 years. It's hundreds of years, a thousand yes. years. These messages yeah. are there, and, and they, go through, they go through time. It's just, it's, it, you know... What what is amazing to me is that it, it isn't like you know they wrote a little note and they hid it under a rock. No, the rock was the message, and and they were able to um, to give directions to those who were coming after them, and and it was just it was so profoundly um, to me amazing that you know it, this country is vast. I've driven across it. I know how big it is, mm-hmm. and how these these stones were placed in appropriate places so that they could be found. And, and those who were coming after knew where to look, which is the important thing. And, exactly. Um, I, and uh, there were signs, signs, seals, and tokens. 
and many of them were uh, were positioned such that there were major landforms, limestone promontories, uh, a variety of landforms that wouldn't have really changed over generations. That's the beauty of this uh, this whole enlightenment, recognizing that the Templars they thought they thought in seven generations like the Native Americans they. Uh, they realized that there could be, because of war, because of plague, attrition, there could be skipping of certain generations. But the the knowledge, the hidden knowledge, was continued to the point where those that discovered or rediscovered the signs think of the think of the elation and the enlightenment that year as you move across North America, realizing that people of your own kind were there generations before. Oh, that, that's there would be mo- you know, moments of of ha ha moments type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well yeah. when as they did as they did that now, you know, people are finding carvings and not knowing what they are. Yes. I know on, on Oak Island they even moved some of the stuff. So uh, you know, it kind of broke the trail and broke the message. Um, it just, to me, it seems phenomenal how, as they crossed the country, that was wilderness at the time. There were no highways. Yes. There were no trails. No, the, high, I mean, the highways were the rivers, the rivers and the yeah. lakes. And they, they were able to, and how even, what, what I found fascinating was a lot of the early explorers were well, so that they they sort of knew what to look for in order to go further than than someone else had gone, and and the, that what, they they were trained in, in recognizing those signs. Wow! They knew absolutely where the where the signs were to be located from uh, a meridian, a longitudinal meridian spot. But uh, until they discovered the the actual signs, they. You know, as you say, North America is a big place. You could miss something not only by a mile, but a hundred miles. Well, yeah, but if they were using the lake, the, the rivers especially, um, there were usually markings at the at the um, places where rivers came together and stuff like that. Did, did it ever happen, I wonder, if as they were following this trail that where a community once was, the community was no longer there? In many cases, that that was exactly the case. But in other cases, there was continuation of Native American settlements, uh, and uh, you know, further generations would have known the signs, the signs, uh-huh. uh, the secrets to to give to those in the settlement, and there'd be an instant recognition that uh, uh, your blood relatives. So you were embraced, and you were welcome in, into the community, the Native Americans. Now, now, unfortunately, unfortunately, pardon me, unfortunately, um, certain people like the Jesuits uh, realized this, and they were privy to uh, just snippets of this hidden knowledge to the point that they could probably, uh, I would hate to say fake it, but uh, they could uh, give the signs and sales, the initial ones, that would allow them the movement into those communities. Yes, but as you go up the different levels, don't those signs change? 
Absolutely. It's many layered. And the Native Americans would have very quickly realized that uh, uh, their visitors uh, weren't of the proper levels, weren't of the proper knowledge, and and just the uh, the mannerisms and the way they uh, uh, they confronted the Native Americans would have given them a hint in terms of who they were wow. or weren't. <laughs> well, so so Prince Henry followed all of these markers to, and I won't tell where it is quite yet, but to a resting place, so to speak. Yes. So yes, and, so, and go ahead. No, you have to remember. You have to remember that he was also being being led uh, by the natives. There were certain tribes. There are stories. You talk about stories. There are certain stories of the Mi'kmaq tribes that disappeared along with Prince Henry as he as he made his way to the west. So there would have been guides, and they you know they would have been passed on from one nation to another nation. There would have been a, a an immense celebration at any of the uh, native settlements uh, because it's, it's a return of the blood brothers. Wow. Did, did as he go across the country, did he gather people who went with him or, or was he more or less a solitary, well, you know, a reasonably small group? A reasonably Frank- small group. His group, yeah. but uh, yeah. he was he was guided by various individuals or small groups, natives, uh, and in some cases, uh, uh, entire tribes followed him. And it's not a case of following him, but joining him in this movement. Yeah. It would have been a journey of the Native Americans would have seen it as much as the Templars. It was a journey of knowledge. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to kind of take us out of America and take us okay. back into Europe because the bloodline was of intermarriage um, was very much the case in Europe as well as for power, for property, for whatever. But, but the bloodline, um, you know, has been kept flowing, so to speak, Yes. Um, you know, creating a powerful, um, a powerful group of people, and it 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 is fascinating to me. Now, um, let's let's go go back even further to where the bloodline starts. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's sure easier to do that. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners understand the Merovingian uh, bloodline and the bloodline uh, part of that. And again, I asked, no, I asked the listeners not to focus on this because sometimes they can't see beyond it. But the bloodline, part of that bloodline was developed through the intermarriage of, uh, of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And obviously there was a profound knowledge associated with that through the ancient mysteries. Uh, Mary Magdalene being a priestess and uh, Jesus understanding the Christian mysteries, the Egyptian mysteries, and practicing those. So it would be a powerful combination of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. 
and that evolved through the Merovingian bloodline into the uh, the Franks or the uh, the France or the uh, the French bloodline. And of course, that bloodline needed new blood all the time. So this whole idea of strategic intermarriage has been played out for for thousands of years, and really it evolved or accumulated within the underground movement in uh, in France and the the Templars acting as not only guardians but intermarrying into that bloodline also. And when they discovered the Templar treasure, it was based on in I believe in the in a greater part or the greatest part, uh knowledge uh handed down by the Jewish high priests of the temple. And in many cases, the Templar families that evolved out of France have a, have a Jewish origin. So there was the inter, intermarriage of faith, a bloodline of different families. And, of course, um, the church would have felt threatened by those families because they represented, again, a direct connection to a higher being, to God. Yeah, I I just got a question here. Where did the name sure. Templar came come from? Well, the Templars, that's French. It's, they were known originally as the poor soldiers of the Temple of Solomon. Yeah. So it, it was a reference to the Temple of Solomon. And it was under the Temple of Solomon that they discovered uh, the so-called Templar treasure. So, so again, really, it all really a Jewish background. Yes, and um, uh, like Prince Henry Sinclair, like Prince Henry Sinclair, uh, the earlier Knights Templar, or the original Knights Templar, knew exactly where to dig because they had prior knowledge that was passed down through the families. Okay, well, I hate your headset. You're a little bit. I hear somebody in the background. Is there somebody in the background? Or? No, you're just bubbling. I mean, I can hear you and mm. understand you, but you're bubbling like you're underwater. But and the I'm same not. with you. Wow. Now that's interesting. We'll, we'll blame that's it the Internet. I think Mark tied into and and, and possibly uh, uh, interspersed the connection. Can you hear me now? Yep, I hear you. But not okay, very so good. That, uh, okay, well, let, let's keep moving forward here. So, okay, so the move forward. Were digging, and did they um, 
and and you often wonder what did they find? I mean, they didn't. It wasn't a national treasure thing where there was a great big huge room that went on forever that had, um, you know, gold and jewels and everything. What did they really find when they dug? Well, obviously they found relics and artifacts, but I believe yeah. they found two things. They they were they found recorded knowledge, recorded genealogies, and I believe that they they discovered the ossuaries or relics uh, containing the bones of uh, the family of Jesus, and that's being okay. well recorded. So so when they took these treasures out of um, Jerusalem, um, it, it the, these are these are things that that they are then moved across Europe and and then finally over here. <clears throat> but were they were some of them? You know, you said that that they left pieces here and there and everywhere. Um, and and it would seem to me that the story you know that goes with the Holy Blood Holy Grail with the Renlis Chateau material um, that Saunier Bellinger um, the priest there that he found one of those pieces that had been left behind so to speak. Yes, sure. And uh, and the notion is that as I indicate in my books, uh, Oak Island was a, a temporary depository for a piece of the treasure. Um, the analogy that I use, you wouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. You would make okay. sure that uh, everything was interspersed in case you were tracked down, certain parties were tracked down. But uh, it was also a reinforcement or a gathering of that support. In essence, remember churches uh, sanctified the inner sanctuary by saints' relics and things like that. If you possess oh, yeah. a, a portion of that treasure, you would feel that you are the guardian of a certain secret, and that reinforced your your purpose in life over many generations. And it, there was always... this this <clears throat> there was this worldwide plan to bring it to bring it together and to really. Mm-hmm reconstruct or to form a new Jerusalem where the freedom of worship, however you wanted to worship, the freedom of speaking to God's supreme being was was available without restrictions. I think what what has always fascinated me is that the uh Rene Chateau material, I mean he, he went to the Vatican. He went he he went to meet with the Pope and then suddenly he had riches beyond belief. And you know, I always thought he was blackmailing the Catholic Church. Um, because he did die. <laughs> I'm, sure he, I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. Now, he may have discovered, instead of physical treasure, he may have discovered a little bit of the, the knowledge, the, the ancient secret knowledge associated with this. And he may have put it together enough pieces that just telling the story would have caused the uh, the church to to feel as though he had discovered enough of it to, that he was a danger to the church. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. So, so and uh, and it makes sense. It makes sense that he discovered um, 
think of it as beliefs. His beliefs uh, um, solidified by the church and uh, his education and his training and his upbringing uh, would have all been challenged by this notion that there was a a, a different uh, a different way of spiritually worshiping a higher being. Yeah. And of course, if he was, if he was, um, if he had information that you know Jesus, you know, married and had children, that would certainly um, undercut the authority of the of the Catholic Church. So they didn't want that out there either. No, and uh, I'll say to people, I said, I don't think realizing that Jesus was just a man. Who practice certain mysteries, who who practice certain enlightenment, um, and married. Uh, I don't think it lessens the message that he was trying to deliver. I think it, in fact, in fact, strengthens it. Um, this whole notion of of taking a wife and developing a family and and enjoying. That spirituality, I think, is as strong as anything that's taught formally across oh. an altar. No, I, I totally agree with you. And that that would explain, I mean, but according to history, or, or at least this A level of history, that Mary did um, go to France and that she did preach in France. And then Tons of churches yes. there are dedicated to her, and um, the Cathars were there, and so it would seem to me that that her presence in that country is is hard to deny. Oh, I I agree, I agree totally. It's hard to not to deny, and again, we talk about stories, stories that are passed down through generations. Uh, you find. Uh, French communities that are, have an absolute belief in this alternative history. And I think that's what the uh, Beijing, Lincoln, and Lee tied into when they wrote Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Uh, it's not that they discovered the story, but they they were able to reveal what was talked about in the various communities, in various circles. They, they brought together certain knowledge and uh, uh, the knowledge was there. They just made sense of it. Well, I think the message is more important than how you get it. You Absolutely. Know, and, and um, it, it, you know, for those of you out there that have not read Holy Blood, Holy Grail, I highly recommend it. It's an amazing book. And um, it's a good read, for sure. Uh, I, I think that that there are so many... There's so much information that is now beginning to flood the market in in the you know giving people alternatives to understanding as to the story the story behind we have been given and as to you know swallow whole cloth um you know frankly uh, i i like I, I like checking things out I like going back and and looking mm-hmm. at things and how you know it just i i I don't swallow anything whole cloth anymore. I, I kind of want to prove it to me because it's important. I, that I, I, that I'm, I, I'm the yeah. same way. I'm the same way. I'm my my own biggest skeptic. 
as I say, holy blood, <laughs> holy grail. It's uh, uh, you know somewhere between ten percent and ninety percent of the history that's presented is true. Um, yeah. It's to what level? To what level do you want to believe? And uh, I think uh, I don't want to touch talk too much about the Da Vinci Code, but Dan Brown at a certain point, certain time, was able to t- tie into the whole world psyche of this notion and uh, for those uh, researchers and historians such as uh, myself uh, we already were aware of that theory or that hidden history and uh, as I say people think that that's the ultimate secret it's not look beyond look beyond the generations look to to pre-christian times to the Egyptian mysteries look beyond Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's kind of like you keep digging and, and the things that you find are so amazing and they enhance your own understanding of the spirit that you carry within. And and so it's 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 an exciting adventure. It truly is. And and it you know, re- you, it really you know, is. And as I as I say, after a while you start realizing that the signs are right in front of you. So you start piecing those pieces of the puzzle together more quickly and the realization and enlightenment starts to come. And uh, it's just amazing to me what I've been exposed to over the past 65 years, my entire life, but only now I'm starting to piece it together. I wish I knew now or I wish (laughs) I knew uh, when I was 20, but I know now. Yeah, but you know something? I have found that when you're 20, people don't listen to you with the same, in the same way as they do when you're, as you're in your 60s, I'm in my 70s, because there's something to age and time and wisdom. And, you know, people will not take you as seriously if you're 20 years old trying to tell this story as if you're 60 or 70. And and we come back to the Native American societies. That's the whole thing. They recognize the elders have that wisdom. That wisdom has been passed down. And it takes a lifetime to bring that knowledge and understanding together so that you have that wisdom. That's the journey of life that we're talking about. That's the real Templar treasure that we're talking about. Oh, and yeah. for some reason, for some reason, society has lost that in many ways. Well, you know, we talked about symbols here. Sorry, Barbara, that that last little bit, you sound as though you were drinking a glass of water or were drinking a glass of water underwater.
try to call you on your phone. Don't go anywhere. And uh, we'll see if I can get you on the phone, which might be a little clearer because you have good stuff here. Yeah, this is um, for, unfortunate that we're this is happening because we're on a roll. Okay, you want to answer your phone and hang up here? Okay. Oh. Hello. Hello. Okay. Wait, wait, I'm gonna mute you. I'm gonna mute Mark. Um, Bill, do you hear me? Huh. I seem to have you, but I don't have you. Okay, we'll go back this way. Okay, can you hear me on the phone? I can hear you on the Skype now. Okay. Well, let's just, this sounds you're coming, clear. You're coming in loud and clear now. All right, well. Let's that, just keep going then. Let's keep so, on so going. Anyhow, yeah. So, so the the um, the Raphael picture of School of Athens with Plato and Aristotle. Yes. Um, hung in my grandmother's living room forever. I always looked at it and went, you know, boy, that's boring. Not anymore. <laughs> and and um, and I, I'm going to have to go out and get a copy of. Poussin's The Shepherds of Arcadia and uh, yeah. Terrier's um, St. Anthony and St. Paul Fed by Raven. Those, yeah. more Those three paintings the- are probably the most important paintings that you could if you wanted to delve into this hidden history more. Yeah. Um, so let's listen to that because, you know, yes, we have cards and symbols. Absolutely, and what the amazing thing about those paintings is, again, generation, generationally, the okay. the way they fit with the the hidden knowledge that's contained, or the layering of those paintings of the geometry and the moral uh, allegory and the symbolism that is contained within those paintings. How I've been able to discover how they fit together, like pieces of a puzzle. Well, Poussin especially. I mean, I, I love he he did two two versions of the Shepherds of Arcadia, and and it's the second well, version. Well, obviously the. Go ahead. The second version, the the second version, he was provided with more information because people realized that he was trying to tap into. So I believe that Poussin himself was initiated into masonry, Knights Templars, and the Rosicrucians 
because there's Rosicrucian and Templar symbolism throughout that painting. And then that painting was a clue. And within my book, I demonstrate how it, how the there was an underlying map of the northeastern seaboard of uh, North America. Um, now that information must have been provided to him by certain spies, Champlain and others, who were early explorers or New France. And then the amazing thing is that 10 years, uh, some 20 years later, was able to take his painting of the northeastern seaboard and fit it into a larger map based uh, upon the exploration uh, all the way to the Mississippi and up to Missouri. So that to me is, is fascinating ancient knowledge itself, how artists have been able to understand, and we refer to it as the art of being able to include many layers of knowledge and symbolism within what apparently would, would be apparent to church to the church as one level of painting that they would find acceptable and actual encourage when when they look at the shepherds of Arcadia they see the transfiguration of uh, Christ yeah and that's all they see and that's all they see ah. but what it speaks to what it speaks to is the movement of those artifacts relics, relics and secret knowledge represented by the tomb of Christ to North well, America. It, it's really, you know, I, I have dabbled with artwork myself. And <clears throat> when I think of the thought that had to go in to the different layers of creating the, the juxtaposition of, of the different people and, and what they were going to represent and what colors and what symbols and what body um, positions you were going to create, I mean, it, it, it becomes almost a mathematical equation of the artist to put the message in there and then and then make it a picture so nobody sees it except those with eyes to see. Yes, and interesting enough, my great uncle used to write from the time that I can remember, give me mathematical puzzles to solve, give me physical puzzles to solve. He was always challenging me. To, to think beyond, to think on a different level, even when I was five. Wow. I was always, fascina- always fascinated by the things that he tried to introduce me to. Well, it, it's the, the St. Anthony and St. Paul fed by ravens. I mean, to me, that one was just, it, it blows your mind. I mean, even even the rocks and things behind them have some are symbolic as to what they are representing and the story that it tells is so amazing and you outline it so beautifully in your book i mean the book is oh thank you um, you know you you have to go back and reread it and then you have to you know blow the picture up on your computer so you can see the different things that they are that they are talking about and with Raphael's school of athens i mean there was the 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 the, the uh, manuscript for the Timaeus was there. Timaeus is that the right yes. way to pronounce it? Um, yeah. Which yeah. Of, which of course you know is where we get the 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 Atlantis material from. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's so, all about time so, and space, and that yeah. movement through time and space, and uh, it's all about uh, astronomy and mathematics and. Uh, you know that common 
that common layering of origin. There's, uh, the natives, along with the Templars, believed that there was order in mathematics and that mathematics could be applied to nature. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when the fitting the square in the circle, you want to talk a little about that? That I thought was fascinating as well. Well, the uh, interesting enough, Euclid uh, developed this uh, theoretical theory that you could define through mathematics uh, this area of a circle in relation to the area of a square being the same. But he was never able to really develop the mathematical formula because pi, as we know, is infinite, 3.14 dash, 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 dash. And so you were never able to define a finite equation. And, and again, there's moral allegory and, and knowledge associated with that, with that theory, that knowledge enlightenment is infinite. And as you say, uh, there's higher levels. The, and nobody's ever reached, I believe, the highest level of enlightenment. Someday, maybe, but uh, uh, we're constantly learning and we're constantly piecing together the pieces of the puzzle. So, in many ways, these artists use the, the squaring of the circle as the basic um, application of sacred geometry uh, to many of their paintings. Um, and, uh, in fact, it can be applied to the surveying of Oak Island. There's a number of applications that you can use for the scoring of the circle on many you know, different it, levels on many different scales. I mean, I, I remember back to the theorems that, you know, we had to memorize when we were in yes. uh, high school. And <clears throat> it was it was funny. I, I had trouble memorizing them, but if I could close my eyes and see it happening, I had the yes. steps appropriately. So so it's sometimes, you know, it, 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 I mean, not always. There isn't always something there, but, but the, and our, every artist, I do believe, puts a part of themselves in every painting they do or drawing or, or lithograph or whatever. And some of, I mean, these three, these three artists especially, we're, we're giving messages through time. And again, it's another one of these, I'm going to put this in here and a thousand years from now, somebody who has the eyes to see it will recognize what it is I'm saying. And no, absolutely. And uh, as you say, the calculus, the geometry that we learn in high school and university now would have been considered sacred 2,000, 10,000 years ago the application of that on so many levels. The uh, high Renaissance artists that we're talking about, uh, Teniers and uh, Poussin, they recognize that. And as you say, it was messages for the future, for those with the enlightenment or, or level of understanding to see those, those signs, symbols, and tokens, the message contained within the various levels of paintings. And that to me I is mean, the fascinating thing. Now, was it Richelieu that was giving Teniers the material, or was it Poussin? Was, in, in, uh, in, in all my research, it was Cardinal Richelieu, who was like a, a double agent. He not only yeah. served 
the king of France, but uh, in many of his, uh, of his self-portraits, of his uh, paintings of himself, um, there are little signs, symbols, and tokens which suggest that he was a member of the Templars and, and the Rosicrucians. And here was supposedly a man, the highest man of God within the uh, kingdom of France. What a what a um, position he was in to to have to to be working with the Enlightenment at the same time working with um, a form of religion that that he didn't totally agree to, and and keep exactly. balance to. Exactly, and, and to me, the, uh, there's no other better description than pure genius. Now, sometimes you had the evil genius because because Richelieu would have had the absolute power over many things, um, and sometimes power corrupts the mind and the body. But uh, in many ways, he had the ability. Think about it. He had the ability to bring together uh, the information that was uh, flowing back through to the French royalty from New France through Champlain. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, a lot of people don't realize, uh, my wife and I were just in Quebec City just a while ago. If you uh, go to Chateau Frontenac and look up into the, uh, one of the original gates of the old city, there's a stone that uh, is, commemorates the uh, Champlain um, desire when he went back to France he appealed to the king of France to cede all of New France to the Knights of Malta so Champlain was not only playing a double secret he was playing a triple secret there were the Knights of Malta, there were Knights Templar and there was the uh, French royalty and church Hmm. he had he served many masters do you think Michelangelo had any of of this training for enlightenment and everything because I know in in a lot of his paintings you, you get a feeling that he's trying to tell you something other than what is graphically there yes uh, no and any any genius uh, of those periods um, really possessed uh, an enlightenment and understanding that was uncommon remember too that the they were they were introduced to an education that uh, knowledge that probably wasn't available to the majority of the population at the time. Oh, you know they, they 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 relied on patrons. It's like Poussin relied mm-hmm. on uh, on Richelieu, whereas Teniers relied on the Archduke uh, Ferdinand, one of mm-hmm. the Habsburgs. Who they were all playing dangerous games across Europe at the time. There was, but the underlying, the underlying notion that they were all seeking that inner knowledge, that was possessed by the uh, by the Templars, that gives a totally different meaning to any historical event across Europe in the past 800 years. It's the old thing, faint with a, a major. Uh, Occupation or a major movement, while the uh, your seeker agents go in searching for certain hidden knowledge. Yeah, just um, very strategic. It, it it it's so strategic. It's worthy of, you know. I mean, today when you when you look at 
uh, even painters, I don't get the feeling that there is the same intensity in the paintings that I see that are current that that are so apparent in in some of the the great masters, you know, Raphael and Michelangelo and No, um, absolutely because because the composition because mm-hmm. uh, many of those paintings are based upon stories, moral allegories that have been passed down through the centuries. You know, the transfiguration of Christ, I think many, if not all of Christians will recognize what that is supposedly about. Uh, the Timaeus, um, you know, pre-Christian knowledge, the continuation of pre-Christian knowledge, uh, the concept or the philosophy through uh, through Euclid and others of space and time, you know that that is that philosophy is, if not at our level today, it's probably was generated. It was probably phenomenal at the time in terms of the level of understanding that we've lost and are only starting to regain. Well, it, it even goes back to the the pillars that that um, yes. all all ancient wisdom was was on that uh, you know, and pillars seem to figure in here quite dramatically in a number of places and oak trees, which um, yes, yes, well, oak trees are replacements for pillars. You know, they're they're the sacred groves. There, there's where secrets and and philosophies were spoken under the rose, Rosicrucian. They, they, they all, all secret societies had certain notions that what they possessed had to be kept secret. And um, it's like being on the play. It's like being on the playground right now. If, if I was on the playground and I spread the word that I knew a secret. There would be people looking to come up to me and and gaining access to that secret only because it's a secret. There's a lesson. Secrets, there's a moral allegory. Yeah, but are Go secrets ahead. meant to always be kept secret, or is there a time when secrets are supposed to be shared? Well, that's what we're talking about tonight. The the prophecies. Uh, uh, the permission that I've been given to start to share those secrets. I I wouldn't I would say it's secretive knowledge. I wouldn't say it's secrets per se. If you have that knowledge with the eyes to see, you you can you can realize that knowledge without my assistance, without anybody's assistance. It it seems to me that that when when people talk about the treasure of the templars now now they did yeah. make a lot of money i mean so so they did have the financial quote unquote treasure but their real yes, treasure yes there was there was physical treasure the but, real treasure the, the real treasures um to me were were wisdom and knowledge and understanding and insight and absolutely um, you know, given a choice of the two, you know, <clears throat> aside from the fact that I'd really like to have a lot of money, but but I would rather have the wisdom and knowledge because if you have that, you don't need the money. No, no, and that's the point. And the, 
And in many ways, that knowledge relates to the forces of nature. Actually, Star Wars got it got it right. You know, if you're if you're Jedi Knight, if you're Knight Templar, you had the knowledge to be able to to create order out of chaos, to to bring together the forces of nature, the forces of man, to achieve that higher level, but also to gain an inner strength that nobody else possessed. Mm-hmm. Well, so if many you, of I, I was just going to say, so many of our forefathers were Masons. Yes. And and they they were trying to create a society that that was built upon sharing and freedom and and all sorts of things. Religious freedom, wrong? specifically. Yeah. Well, I think I think the um, that whole concept was absconded by the. Uh, the religious right, the evangelical uh, right, the uh, the notion that uh, um, you it was the minister, the priest that was able to guide you to to that contact with God, instead of looking in inward into your soul, and that's yeah. where God dwells. Oh no, I absolutely believe that, but. But it's it's just that there were so many highly powerful men that were guarding this secret, guarding this this treasure, and and I'm talking about the treasure of wisdom here. Um, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. sure that I'm sure that when they dig it all up, they'll find something worth a lot of money too. But the most important stuff is is in whatever um, documents are there of any sort. Yes. And, oh, and, absolutely. And my fear would be, see, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let it out yet, because my fear would be that 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 a discovery like that would be something that would that would ignite so much controversy that that the, that the real beauty and truth there would be would be ignored or not seen. Well, here's a question I always put to people that uh, ask me about the uh, the so-called Templar treasure. If if there was something physically discovered, if there was artifacts, if there was there's written records, genealogical records, who owns that that information? Who should Everybody. it be shared with? Everybody. But yeah. I'm sure there's certain groups. There's certain families that will come out and lay claim to the to the so-called treasure to the point that it will be buried once again. You know, those in power would be afraid that they would lose the power. Well, yeah, they probably would, but but only because everybody would be equal and have the same power. If they, yeah, if they, isn't that isn't if, that isn't that the perfect message? That's the perfect yeah. message right now. And that it's the Native Americans, idea. so it, uh, yeah, the the treatment of the Native Americans has to change. Of in, of all Indigenous people, the embracing of 
of nature and the environment has to change. A lot of things have to change, I think, in order for us to survive. And I think that's the Templar message. What 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 an amazing thing. Now you have traced the location of where the treasure is. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I think maybe we won't tell everybody. We'll make them read the book. But you've <laughs> you've actually, well. Um, I've pin I've pinpointed exactly where I believe the treasure is, and that I've discovered that certain the certain uh, ruins and fortifications which suggest to me that I'm right on the uh, right on the dot on the map. X marks the spot. Yeah, but Templars were famous for booby traps and everything. So I think anybody trying yeah. to dig it up is is going to have look at the Laginas. I mean, on Oak Island, um, six years, seven years, and they've got a couple of coins and a couple of pieces of jewelry and some pottery, and they have nothing and, else to, other than that. And what I what I like to say about that when a lot of people ask me about have I watched the Curse of Oak Island and what I think about it, I'll say that maybe the brothers aren't realizing that the one true treasure that they're rediscovering or discovering is their brotherhood. Um, I I watch it. I'm fascinated by how the brothers are evolving and their relationship is evolving, not only between the two of them, but with their friends and uh, their family. And And I noticed in the last couple of shows of last year, they started talking about this brotherhood. Um, and it's and it's really the spiritual in, inspiration that they're gaining from what they're doing. Now they could probably save a lot of money and go about it a little <laughs> different way if they were to yeah, apply probably. this the sacred geometry and the moral allegory. And I can help them uh, understand the various levels of masonry that were used to uh, to conceal the uh, the crypt or the vault. Um, well, I, but I can tell yeah, you right now. I can tell you right yeah. now that the Templar treasure was moved a long time ago. Oh yeah. And uh it served this purpose. It it's caused people to spend actually it's probably two hundred and twenty three years uh to fail to look beyond the island. Well I think to what what across really, North America. What what really gets to me with, with that particular series is I really believe that there is another way into it all without going without digging down into where the 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 natural water line is. Yep, um, there's I, a I back door. And the back door yeah. I know exactly where it is based on the sacred geometry on the squaring of the circle that I've applied to the island. So all the signs and seals and tokens are there. They just don't have the um the background to identify it. Well then, then it's part of their journey, and um, absolutely. And a lot of people are fascinated by the journey in itself. I get a little frustrated oh, yeah. when every ten minutes they say this could be the most significant find in North American <laughs> history. But yeah, yeah um, to their credit, to their credit, they are they are definitely following up on history, and they have an archaeologist working with them, and you yes. know they really are. I mean. They're they're trying and and I think that's that's amazing that that their journey is is so public because 
lots of times our journeys are very private journeys and, and we don't get the um, opportunity to share our aha moments. And sometimes an aha moment for me is a ho-hum moment for somebody else. But, um, you know, it, it is an exciting thing to to work with enlightenment, to work with understanding your spirit, to understand, you know, how we are supposed to be living our lives as opposed to how we've been told so that so that it's exciting and and it is and sort of, and that's what makes the reality series so fascinating i know half the people want to see them actually discover something of significance and half of them you know wanting the, them to continue not to discover anything but uh <laughs> uh what? what they're discovering or or what they're unveiling is a hidden history. Now, I could probably well, help them yeah. write that hidden history very quickly, but uh but I think that that's that's really Im- another important piece of the puzzle, so to speak, that that they are they are really carefully trying to understand what is going on there. And they yes. they have actually not not told anybody that they were flipping crazy. They've listened <laughs> to a whole bunch of of very unusual um, suggestions. And, and what's fascinating, yeah. To, yeah. What's fascinating to me is every single one of them has a grain of potential truth in it, which is really well. Phenomenal. That's where I'm. That, that's where I'm saying take everything that's being presented in terms of theories and take 10% mm-hmm. from every theory and there's a truth associated with that. Oh, yeah. But uh, well, uh, what, pe- what they don't realize, well, the, what they're starting to do on Oak Island is realize that there's a layering of generations of history, of hidden mm-hmm. history on that island and a development of the vault or crypt over time. But that what they don't realize is that that was a sacred place in pre-Christian times to the Native Americans, to the Mi'kmaq. It was uh-huh. a natural sinkhole, and that would have been, you know, we talk about initiation rites in caves and underground. Again, yeah. that would have been that grotto or that initiation cave where certain ceremonies took place. And it was revered to the point that over time it was developed. And I can tell you the last, the last party to develop, it was the, uh, it was the uh, British North American military in the mid-1700s. They had the capabilities. They, they had the Masonic background. Most of the uh, British officers at that time were Masons, high-ranking Masons. And they had the ability, they were to feign um, their activities because at the same time they were looking to build the citadel on, in Halifax. So I talk about that bigger strategy. Build something that everybody's yeah. fascinated with so they don't look at the little activity that's going on on the South Shore. <laughs> yeah, and what they should do too what they should also do is um, they should delve more into a fellow named Reginald Vanderbilt Harris, who was the Supreme Grandmaster and Knights Templar, just before my great uncle in, in the late uh, 1940s. And he wrote 
as far as I'm concerned, the penultimate book on Oak Island. And even in the writing of the book, there are certain hidden layers of knowledge that people who read the book think it's an enjoyable book, but they don't realize the underlying knowledge and understanding that's contained within it. Well, it is. Um, it's always fascinated me. And um, <clears throat> I have to admit that I, I watch it and I, I, you know, I feel so sorry for them when they don't find something and yet <laughs> I find it fascinating. It, it is addictive. It definitely is addictive. Yeah. But, but the moral to the story is always look beyond. Take uh-huh. Leap over Frog Island. They, they identified Frog Island, which is the adjacent island, the Oak Island. Leap over Frog uh-huh. Island to the mainland to what's well, referred to as the Aspatagic Mountain, a major landmark on the south shore, and go from there. What they should be doing they is have... they should be following. Go ahead, sir. No, wasn't there a, they, they, felt, they thought they had found a, um, a fortification that, that Prince Henry may have built there on the mainland? What, what I did, I, I discovered certain ruins that I attributed to Prince Henry Sinclair. Um, uh-huh. it, it's, what's interesting here is that they think, once again, they think that Oak Island is the ending point to that journey. It's really uh-huh. the starting point. Always look beyond. There's an infinite degrees of knowledge that you can achieve. That's the whole thing, and that's what allowed the Templars and their Native American brothers to move across North America to establish the very Templar sanctuaries ahead of their pursuers. They were all three steps ahead of everybody, strategically, from a knowledge point of view. When Prince Henry came to the end of the trail, was it because yes. he passed away, or was it because that's where he was meant to, to, to bury whatever it is he had? Both, both. I believe that uh, he brought the final piece of the puzzle together, put that puzzle together, and in like many cases, he passed away and is buried along with that puzzle. It's, it's, it's and it's li- and it's lying within the, within his refuge, his sanctuary. Man, it'll be just so cool. I mean, I would love to find it, but I would hate to um, I, disturb you it. Know, well, I'd hate to disturb it, and you know something. So long as it's a mystery, so long as it's something to seek, it it does help people on their own spiritual journey. Exactly, and that, in many ways, the Templars realized that, too. It's caused me to dig through my ancestry, through, you know, the question, everything that I've been taught over the last 65 years, and to re-piece it together. Well, you've had, you've had a really good time with the blood work and the DNA. And, um... <laughs> my, my, wife might, my wife might not agree with that, but... Uh, because I, I, she would say I spent it, I spent an inordinate amount of time on it. But yes, I've had a really good time. Well, you know, I have to admit, you sent me for to find out what haploid group I was in, 
because you yeah, know it was like oh you know it was happily I did twenty three and me so it wasn't hard to find but no um, but, the, but that you should really do a deep dive into your DNA but I always say that in order to understand the person you are you have to understand where you come from your ancestral background really what has made you the person you are and to be proud to be proud of that heritage regardless of what it is well it's just um, it was Sinclair who has set up has he set up the uh, the the DNA um, program that he's got going to identify um, people who are of the bloodline, or because you know when I stop to think about it, it's been two thousand years. Now over mm-hmm. that two thousand years, I mean, just by looking at, and they tool to friends, and you know, I mean, that bloodline has to be all over the place. Well, that's right. I think what Steve St. Clair is trying to do is to really identify that group of Sinclairs. Uh, Remember, Uh there would have been uh, outside marriage, inside marriage, a lot of different activities over the the centuries. Um, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to he's trying to form or follow that uh, that trace lineage back to the bloodline. But there's it's like there's as many branches on a tree as you can count, and even more. Oh yeah. I like to think that I like I would like to think that the majority of people on this earth have a little bit of that bloodline in them. I I don't see how they could not. I mean, two thousand no. years is a long time. And <clears throat> and to have um, a piece of that inside of you. Um, you know, is very exciting, and and I and I truly believe we probably all do, to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And you, you I, kind of. I would agree. I would agree absolutely. So and if, that if, and that fact is is a message itself. Embrace that. Embrace that heritage. Um, embrace the mysteries, the knowledge that that can rise out of you. Well, it it isn't just you know necessarily a family tree. I mean, it, it, with some it is, but but it's it's sort of like this is this is these are fragments of me that have come through time, and there's such a richness in mm-hmm. it that it's just it's unbelievable. And and you're right to know where you came from. Not necessarily that that you know somewhere in the past you were. Cleopatra or whatever, um, mm-hmm. you know that that's that's never really been of interest to me. But 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 where what parts of the country, what cultures have I have I been a part of, and you know can I delve into those a little bit more and understand how they have affected where I am right now, and how they will affect where I go in the future. And use it to your benefit, not for not for your monetary benefit, but for your emotional and spiritual benefit. That uh, oh, yeah. you know, feel comfortable within your skin, feel comfortable as to who you are. That's that's in part as strong as uh, any message. 
has Sinclair found clusters of people around the world that have a greater um, percentage of, of the uh, of the bloodline? Um, I wouldn't say that he's found clusters, but he, I would think that we could refer to it as more direct lineage mm-hmm. than indirect. So I think that's what the actually Steve's done a great job in terms of what he's delving into. Now, is this through the mother or the father? Or both? Actually, it's both sides. He's doing the, a deep dive. But as I say, you know, uh, generations ago, um, uh, the Scottish Laird may have, uh, on a Saturday night, gone out to the uh, um, out behind the barn and, and things like that. So, um, in terms of direct lineage, that's one thing. In terms of, there's many Sinclairs out there that uh, uh, they attribute the name uh, to mm-hmm. to the lineage, but. Uh, aren't part of that lineage. Um, uh, DNA is an interesting thing. Now, it brings us back to this whole notion of what would possibly be the greatest threat to the church. Well, if you possess the bones or relics of Christ Mary Magdalene and could prove that uh, that there was a generational intermarriage, and that uh, Christ didn't rise from the dead. Um, that would uh, that would confront the church's whole church's tenets in in many ways. Well, his spirit did. It's just that his body didn't. Yes. Well, in many cases, uh, the church's uh, central tenet is that his body rose from the dead. Yeah, that would definitely put a put a wrench in their work. That for would, sure. yeah, that would uh, cause uh, some real self doubt, you know. And uh, I I I admire people with absolute faith in the church and the church teachings. Um, I'm just not one of those. I'm continually questioning uh, what is and as you are, what is being taught to us formally. I think there has to be a rewriting of history in some ways. Oh, not in some ways, in all ways. <laughs> I mean, if yes. if you look at, at what is being taught in schools today, it would horrify you. And and they are kids are being made to learn it by rote, to spit it back, and to live by it. And it just is horrible. Mm-hmm. Um. But, you know, I, I have found that, that I'd like to say every day, but at least every week, there's there's something that I learn that enhances my philosophy. And, and quite often, and I always tell people, this is my philosophy today, but check with me tomorrow, it may have changed. Because, you know, the more you learn, the more you grow, the more you know. And, well, and that's... It's, it's, that's uh, that's you though, but there's a lot of people out there that believe that what they're taught is absolute, and they don't want to hear anything else, and they don't want to grow, which is unfortunate. Because Very. there's a, a totally di- there's a totally different world uh, world out there to those that open up their mind to it, and it's and it's 
in my case, has been immensely gratifying. And it's caused me to write. I never thought I would be an author, a best-selling author, but it's it's caused me to write books that uh, have been my release because it's allowed me to piece together those puzzles in many ways. In many ways, many times, I have so many things flying around my head that uh, that that it's good to get some of it out of there and piece it together. Well, it is. <clears throat> And what I love is it's a puzzle that most probably you're not going to have all the pieces to for quite a while. Um, no. You know, there's always a, there's always something more. There's always another layer. And um, it's like it's like the analogy that I use is you're at the cottage and you're putting together a 500 piece puzzle, and when yeah. you go to the fridge for a drink, the wind comes and blows three pieces underneath the couch <laughs> that you never can find. Yeah, I I I've had animals that ate the last piece, and I would get to the yeah, end of yeah. it, and it would be like, all right, who ate it? Because it's not here. Yeah. But but you know, but what's really exciting is is if you do complete a puzzle, what what most people don't understand is you get another one immediately. It's not like I can yeah. sit back and re- and sit back and rest on my laurels. It's okay. What is the next puzzle? What is the next challenge? What is the next level I'm going to look to, to, to more greatly understand who I am, where I am, and what my purpose is? Because you never have and it that, all. And you have it all. There's, you know, there's no point. That, and that's the thing. I know a lot of people on this journey. They think I've discovered the absolute end. No, you just discovered the beginning of another, another level of journey. But that's the most Absolutely. fascinating thing. I'm like yourself. I Every day I get up and I discover something different. And I relate something different to something. And I'm just amazed at how all the pieces come together. And and the whole thing is, too, and I tell people, not, yeah, and not one person has all the pieces. And that's why we should be talking about this and, and exposing this to start to generate that thought. Well, I've always thought that the purpose of Nightlight was, <clears throat> and people said, why did you call your show Nightlight? And it was like, I want to I wanna be a light in the darkness that people can look at and understand that there are lots of lights and, and not have to sit in the dark all the time. You know, just challenge. And I hope we're, and I hope that our conversation is doing that. If nothing else, you know, um, even if people think we're crazy, that's at least <laughs> generating some thought. But you know what? On a on a on a more serious side, I hope that in in us having this conversation and exposing some of that uh, notion of a higher level of knowledge that people will be going and seeking it for themselves. And you can oh, seek absolutely. it in many ways. As I say, you can take a walk through the woods. That's enlightening in itself. Well, I think your book gives people hints of directions to look in and things to look at. Because I don't think I'll ever look at artwork in, you know, in the same way again. I will be looking for, especially with the old masters, I'll be looking at what yes. else are they trying to say. 
you know, what what else is there here that that maybe um, I haven't seen? It, it's like that that uh, cathedral in Montreal that had mm-hmm. the um, the um, Hebrew letters in it that that didn't say yeah. what it norm- normally did. It, it it spelled out Eve, and yes. um, so and, and that again is something else that 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 this is all bringing more into line and and making people more aware of the fact that you know they're they're I I hate to think that that there isn't a male and female balance as far as as um spirituality goes you know that it isn't a, a male god it isn't it, it's it there's a male and a female energy at work here and it's the sun and the moon. It's 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 you know the, the spirit Black and the and earth. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's good. It's good and a, evil. Yeah, there's a duality. And yes, very know, much so. People. And you talked about the founding fathers of America, Washington and such, Jefferson. Um, they were in fact dualists. They believed in that balance. Oh, yeah. They believed in the in the coming together in male female, into an androgynous state, in, into a state of perfection. Um, Rosicrucianism uh, relies on alchemy, the transformation of the soul of the spirit. Um, they believed in that also, and as you say, how did it get lost? How did it get stolen? Um, I have a few theories, but uh, I think that's probably a, another topic for another show. Most probably. <laughs> no, I, it's, I think it's, that... It's hard to say, but uh, go ahead. No, I, I mean, even Washington was laid out according to Masonic symbols and yes. everything. I mean, it, they started out with with um, the symbols out there. I mean, just the the layout of the streets, the heck, the the Washington Monument, the I mean, you know, they they were pulling pulling on the goddess in many in many different ways, and it's just that people, you know, they see it but they don't see it, and well, you know, it's it's known as the District of Columbia, Columbia, the goddess. Um, there had to be that balance. But the goddess speaks to that spiritual awakening, that enlightenment uh, in pre-Christian times in terms of the uh, uh, the Greek, the Roman, the Egyptian goddesses, gods. Um, you know, how did, how did this concept of a single deity come together? Yeah, it I mean when you look at the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians, you know, it was always male and female. It was never just yes. one. It was it was the two. And and it it's important when you when you think of it, it there has to be a balance. And without that balance, um you don't go anywhere, you don't grow. You That's right. <laughs> and, well, and that doesn't work then I'll, I'll well. leave. I'll leave you with this. There's a balance between the colors red and white. You'll notice through yeah. Native American culture 
that there's a predominance between those two colors. Those two colors speak to the male, female, to good, to evil, to as above, so below. Uh, all of that is attributable to those two colors. And those are the colors of the Templars. Yeah, and we didn't even get into Columbus and the information. He was connected to the Sinclairs as well, I believe. Yes, yes, through the Drummond family, yeah. And the belief so, is that he was provided or or he was given certain information as to whether it was information that which allowed him to discover uh, Central America or put put those who who followed them off the trail. Well, yeah, that's what There's I was going to say. Is, was he was he intentionally trying to drag attention away from North America? I would say so. He did a good job about it. Oh yeah. Yeah, he never set foot in America. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize in Native American cultures there was no North America versus South America versus Middle America. Um the shamans traveled. That was their purpose in life. They traveled uh throughout the Americas and exchanged knowledge and exchanged traded, exchanged materials medicinal materials um, in order for their nation to grow. They would come back and they would share the knowledge that they gained on their journeys to other nations, Native American indigenous nations. Yeah, they didn't... So the traveling shaman is... Yeah. No. No, they shared it. But in order... This is true not only in masonry, but also Native American ritual. In order to prove that you're worthy of that sharing of knowledge, you had to go through certain ceremonies and degrees, like climbing a ladder. You're constantly moving to a higher degree. Uh And you would never reach the top. You were always learning. Well, that's that's what's so wonderful about it all. You know, it, exactly. it's, there's always something more to sit back and say, holy mackerel, look at that. And, and I mean, what you've done, especially with the painters, I mean, I, I you know, the, the stones and the symbols and everything, that, that was something that I knew about. But the, the yeah. paintings and, and the symbology and the, and and the the messages that they give is so profound. I mean, if for no other reason, people should buy your book and read it just for that material. I mean, I, I would read it for all of the material, frankly. But <laughs> but it just it 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 puts such a different perspective on on. I, I mean, it made these these some of these paintings that I thought were kind of boring. It made them come alive. It was, this is symbolic of this. Holy mackerel. That makes sense. So, you know, you in, should go in, out and buy uh, colored posters of those paintings and put them up on your wall and stare at them. I'm going to. I'm going to. Well, I'm moving. I'm sure, so you'll, I'm I'm sure things will ju- Yeah, no, I'm sure things will jump out at you after this oh, discussion. I, oh, my gosh, yeah. And and I loved the St. Paul and... and um, and the other guy. Um, St. Anthony. Anthony. 
Yeah, I love that one being said by Ravens because he was afraid of of snakes, I think, and he was sitting on one. I mean, yeah, that was an allegory to something for sure. I mean, it was well. Saint Anthony, the story behind Saint Anthony was constantly tormented by demons, and the snake was viewed as a demon, but. If he took himself to the wilderness, as the original St. Anthony and St. Paul did, and we're not talking about St. Paul the disciple, we're talking about the first two hermit monks, they took to the wilderness, and they were able to control, you know, again, the balance of good and evil. They were able to control that evil through logic and reason, and reason that, that God was surrounding you that you didn't need the formal church to speak yeah, to God. And, 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 and that's the enlightening thing about it. The, the area that you've, you've kind of X marks the spot has a great deal of ravens there, too. I mean, so... Yes. And, and, ravens, and ravens have always, you know, carried messages um, and from in, the living. In, the but in, in Native American culture, you have to remember that the raven is like the crow. It's like the trickster. Yeah. So there's certain things that are tricking you, too. That's Absolutely. that's the beauty of it. Is I, I look at that on so many levels, and I just chuckle because there's there's so many symbols and messages conveyed through that painting. And that painting was done 400 years ago. To me, that's fascinating. And yet... And yet, it helped to take you exactly to where you feel that the uh, that Prince Henry is resting. Yes, the final refuge of the Knights Templar. Yeah. Which I think is a beautiful story in itself. Oh, absolutely. No, and I, I just. And the uh, uh, surrounding. <clears throat> oh yeah, the surrounding area was amazing. Yeah, and the surrounding I, I Native could, Americans are are the current guardians, and we should wow. respect that. We should look at the indigenous people in a totally different light, and you start to understand why they were. History tells us that they were, you know, they were the Europeans or Americans tried to obliterate the Native Americans. Why? Not only for their land, for their minerals, but for their spiritual knowledge. Yeah, they, um, they, we're coming, <clears throat> we're coming up on the very end of the show. Unfortunately, um, how can people find you if they want to uh, check out your website or whatever? They can check out my website, which is www.templarsnewworld all one word dot com, or they can check out. Uh, as Grand Historian, Grand Archivist, I established the uh, com. There's a lot of historical work that I'm now starting to digitize and put on the uh, on that website. They can check out knightstemplar.ca for the Knights Templar Canada, or they can check out knightstemplar.org for the Grand Encampment of the United States, which we have a tremendous relationship with. Wow. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for tonight. This has been fascinating, and, and and also invite you back for when your next book comes out in September, which is a work of fiction. 
it's a work of fiction, but you'll find it interesting. It's based on it's based on actual historical letters that I discovered when I was grand historian and archivist, uh, where were which were written between the Confederate general Albert Pike, who went on to become the grand sovereign of the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction in the United States, and Colonel McLeod Moore, William James Burry McLeod Moore who was the Grand Sovereign and uh, Supreme Grandmaster and Knights Templar here in Canada. So wow. I found it fascinating that I was able to discover these historical uh, letters which have now been authenticated, and I've been able to develop a modern-day thriller around that, which obviously had a certain amount of real history and, and hidden knowledge uh, embedded into it. Well, well. Until then, I I do thank you, and and um, I so appreciate your being with me tonight. Oh, it's been a real pleasure, Barbara. Take care now. Good night. <laughs>